everyone has the potential to achieve. So we make sure that our qualifications give all students the opportunity to show what they can do and progress to the next stage of their lives. Our UK qualifications are highly valued by employers and universities around the world. As an independent education charity, our income is reinvested back into AQA's charitable activities, funds our cutting edge research and supports our initiatives to help young people facing challenges in life realize their potential. Hello there. Thanks for joining me today for another job pod. Today I'm joined by David Lambert, who's Emeritus Professor of Geography Education at UCL Institute of Education. Welcome to Job Pod, David. Hi, pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> it's taken some while. I'm not quite sure why. Did well, I'm retired, John, you see. The clue was in Emeritus. I'm, <laughs> I'm retired. I disappear. But very glad to be here. Well, that's, that, that makes a problem for me because you've done so much in your career that trying to summarise it all is really quite difficult. What was interesting, well, I knew this anyway, but when you see academics, quite often they've gone straight into academia. But no, you had 12 years in school, ending up as a, as a deputy head. You've written many textbooks, school textbooks, award-winning school textbooks, actually. Some of them I've used but also academic texts. You're a teacher educator. You've written widely on the curriculum. You were appointed chief exec of the Geographical Association in 2002. Part of that involves you becoming a, a, a key advisor to the government through curriculum change. And then you went back to the university sector part-time in 2007, then became full-time again. Your contribution is immeasurable to geography education. But I don't want, if, if, I, if I go through it all, you won't, as I say, won't get a word in edges. So let's fill in some of the gaps. Let's start, at, let's not quite at the start, not bouncing on your mum's knee, but tell me about your degree. Why did you want to become a geographer? I mean, there is a pattern to the, um, to that little uh, biography that you summarised there, which will probably emerge. I went to Newcastle University as an undergraduate and I read geography. What was the decision-making process behind that? Well, it wasn't an inspirational geography teacher. It wasn't that cliche. In fact, it was the other cliche. It was, it was the thought that maybe I could do a little bit better. <laughs> I mean, I love geography, but I was a bit bored with it at school. But I saw, I saw enough in geography to know that I was fascinated. Fascinated by, you know, the way geography demands that you link stuff together. This is what really uh, interested me. Why I chose Newcastle, well, you know, it's the usual story. I didn't. Newcastle was third on my list after Cambridge and Durham. Cambridge interview was probably a waste of time. The Durham interview was a cataclysmic error on my, I was actually late for it. And I didn't, I didn't get off at a place. And Newcastle was third on the list and the interview went very well. And I liked Newcastle a lot. And so I ended up, and I'm really glad I did because I made lifelong friends, including uh, geographer friends, such as uh, Andrew Kirby, in, uh, who's now in uh, Phoenix, uh, Tucson, Arizona. So that was great. And I knew, even as an undergraduate, I wanted to be a teacher. As I said, I just th thought I could do it. I like kids. And I like the humanity of it all. So I became a teacher. And um, that was a, a glorious time. 
why did I become a teacher educator? That's because I found myself as a teacher, as a deputy head teacher, with less and less contact with actually teaching. Why did I become chief exec of the GA at the end of the last century? Well, again, I was an academic and I was finding I was spending less and less time doing the geography I loved. And I thought maybe I'll do some more geography through the GA and that's how it turned out. So my whole career has been shaped by a commitment to uh, geography, but specifically geography in education and the educational potential of the subject. I feel that you changed the, the direction of the Geographical Association. You would have been the first geographer appointed. I, I know they work with volunteers, but you were the first chief director right. who was a geographer. That's right. The, the GA expanded really rapidly after the introduction of the national curriculum following the Education Reform Act of 1988. And it was during the 90s that I think the, the great and the good of the GA, the officers, the president and all the other officers, I think realised that the GA had to professionalise in the sense that the GA itself needed an executive power. Before that, it was volunteers in charge with a small administrative staff at the head office in Sheffield. And it wasn't agile enough. It wasn't quick enough. The decision making was too cumbersome. And so I think there was a a recognition that the GA had to professionalise in that sense. That started to bring in a lot of projects, didn't it? Because that was one of the things that when I first started, you'd been there for some time and it, and it begun to bring in an, an awful lot of funding from elsewhere through different agents that linked with the with geography. Well, I, I was dead lucky and I was appointed in 2002, which was at the beginning of the second term of New Labour. And it was in the second government of Tony Blair's that to put it crudely, the money started to flow. There was money around for projects of all kinds through various government agencies, not just the DFE. When I was appointed, the, the projected budget of the GA was a quite a substantial deficit, but we never actually ran into that deficit because almost immediately we started to get project money in, which culminated in uh, 2006. Uh, was that right? something like that, with the Action Plan for Geography, which was the big one, a big project shared with the Royal Geographical Society over a period of five years, uh, and that had a huge impact. It created the space for the GA to develop its own manifesto, which is reasonably well known under the banner of a different view. Learn geography well and you get a different view of the world. I've known that since I was a teenager. <laughs> so yes it, it was dead lucky that money isn't available anymore of course the, the financial crash was in 2008 in came a new government in 2010 new labor's finished austerity begins the money dries up and so my successor alan kinder has been brilliant at going back to basics again in a different way uh, developing uh, the membership and trying to grow the membership it always surprises me when people visit and say, oh, crikey, is, is this the staff? I expected it to be huge, like the RGS. The administrative staff is rather tiny, isn't it? For those people who've never been to the Solly Street, it's sure. a small, tight group. Sure. I have to admit, when I started, it was bigger than it was a year later. <laughs> uh, because I, I had to um, trim things down. It was a, a little bit bloated. It's 
quite a, an interesting situation that, you know, when you, you're responsible for the bottom line. Do these particular jobs still need doing? Well, maybe not. So uh, an organisation, a dynamic organisation is, is constantly evolving and changing and uh, driven by strategic priorities, that's, um, which, of course, the membership drive. So in, in 2007, that caused a change again in the GA because you became a prof, like a, a half-time professor. So I'm only going to give you the, the first bit of the yeah, word. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you shared your time between the GA that's right. I, I guess when I took the role of chief exec in 2002, um, I kind of thought, well, I, I've never had a career plan, really. But I, I kind of assumed it was probably that was it for me. I was already in my 50s and uh, I was living life. Why would I want to do anything else? But of course, you know, the world's always changing. And, and the professorship of geography education came up at the Institute. And it kind of occurred to me, in fact, it was an action plan meeting with teachers in Bristol. As far as I was concerned, um, my academic work was sort of at least partly underpinned by my GA work. And I would like to think vice versa. There was a real symbiosis. And for a while, it was, it was truly exciting. But when you think about it, and I began to realise this after a probably a couple of years or three years. The chief exec role at the GA is, is a big job. And being a professor is also quite a big job. And, and they're not the same job. And it was great whilst the symbiosis really worked for the first couple of years. But it, it became increasingly apparent to me and probably everyone else around me <laughs> that uh, something had to give. I had to jump one way or the other. And uh, the full-time post at the Institute came up and it was kind of an easy decision. I thought, well, okay. And by that time, it was someone else's turn to, to work at the GA. And there's no, no kind of, as Boris Johnson once said, no one's indispensable. <laughs> <laughs> so that gave you time, I suppose, for a bit more thinking, a bit more reflection. What led you to... I mean, you've done lots of initiatives, you've written loads, but the Geo Capabilities Project yeah. was a, a really interesting one. That, yeah. that, that was EU funded. Yes, I'd already been working on the idea of capabilities as a kind of a theoretical construct um, from 2007 when I went back to the Institute as part time professor, as you, professor, as you said. My inaugural pro professorial lecture which is a nerve-wracking event for anyone, was in 2009. I was there, I think. I think a lot of people were there. I was absolutely <laughs> gobsmacked. There were about 200 people in the room. I was talk about nervous. And, uh, you know, for that event, I had to write my professorial lecture, which is still available. It's called Lost in the Post. <laughs> and capabilities are featured in that lecture. That's where it kind of first appeared in print, so that's in 2009. And again, in the book that I did with John Morgan in 2010, uh, there's a reasonably substantial section on capabilities. Capabilities I was aware of in uh, welfare economics from Amartya Sen, who also worked closely with Martha Nussbaum, the humanities US academic. I was aware of it, but I had a sort of, kind of like a Damascus moment where, where I thought, well, this, this is actually 
quite an interesting idea how education might contribute to the capabilities of the person. Now, in Amartya Sen's term, that what he means by capabilities, it's it's not a, it's not like competencies. Is Amartya Sen always refused to write down a list of capability? Um, Become a tick list, I suppose. As soon as yeah, you do. It, it, as soon as you get a tick list, it becomes something else. Because what he was wanting to get was this idea of capabilities as being part of what he calls substantive human freedom. It's the freedom to be and to do. And in welfare economics, of course, the idea is that uh, poverty is a problem, not because your wallet is empty, per se. Poverty is a problem because it, it stops you doing things. It stops you becoming the person that you might become because you don't get the opportunities, you don't get the education, you don't get the healthcare, you don't get the clean water, all that stuff that many of us take for granted. And I tried to translate that into a sort of a, a school curriculum setting. I mean, is that a good way to think about, you know, learning geography? We, we, we make children learn geography for 11 years. You know, why? Well, presumably it's because it, we, we think it does them good. Well, capabilities is quite an interesting lens for trying to analyse why. And so there's a theme here, John, that goes right back to me as a teenager. I thought I got geography. I got it. It was really interesting how it puts stuff together for me. And I was wondering whether it was possible to talk about the geography curriculum in general in those terms. And capabilities kind of gave a lens to do that. You talk a bit about how capabilities contribute to these you call them, I'm not sure where the term comes, substantive freedoms. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the idea that I was excited about. I've just outlined what Sen meant by that in terms of welfare economics. It's the freedom to be and to do. It, in other words, it's the freedom to fulfill your potential in the relationships you make, in the, the way you earn your living in the conditions in which you live, in the conditions in which you can bring up your children. Those are the welfare matters. But in terms of the geography curriculum, it's something to do with the intellectual capacity. And you can see how this linked to the GA's manifesto, where we started to talk about geography being important, not because it gives you a list of stuff that you didn't know before. It's because it helps you think in a new way. So in the manifesto, there was a lot about thinking geographically. People like Peter Jackson helped us articulate that. That's been thrown about an awful lot. So it'd be really nice to come back to you at the source who helped develop that whole idea, you and Di Swift and Peter Jackson and others. What Pin it down for me, thinking geographically. Well, I think it's quite hard to, to answer that without going on to how capabilities developed as a project because what we did was import another theoretical construct completely separate and completely different and in some people's views completely incompatible but I haven't let that worry me too much which is the whole social realism thing about powerful knowledge. What interested me about powerful knowledge is that it's not knowledge in the traditional fact sense People, many teachers included, tend to be very dismissive about knowledge. Oh, it's just knowledge. Well, actually, just knowledge. <laughs> I mean, knowing stuff, really knowing stuff, which means understanding stuff. 
is uh, not necessarily easy for us. It demands some effort and so on. And powerful knowledge is not just lists of concepts or lists of facts or something. It's about understanding where knowledge comes from, how knowledge is made, socially constructed by people who are serious about thinking in their specialist fields, trying to make sense of the world. And that is the link between disciplines and schools. I mean, it is for universities to do and, and other institutions to do that deep thinking about making sense of the world, developing concepts to help us think. But there's a connection with school. There must be a connection with school. Schools are about introducing, I think, young people to how to think, often with ideas which, when they're first made, are mind-boggling, like DNA or whatever, you know. But, but, you know, I think year nines now learn about DNA, probably younger than that. There is a connection between knowledge making and knowledge communication at school level. And the thinking is, all, is right at the heart. Powerful knowledge, as I say, is not just inert given facts that come out of books. It's about the social construction of knowledge. And it's about grasping how knowledge can be argued about. It's challenged, it's always contested, and it can be reshaped and developed as a result of that. I think schools have a duty to introduce young people to that idea. And so coming back to your question, what is thinking geographically? Well, I think underpinning it is the broad concepts that describe you know, what geography is. Geography, like any other subject, is concerned with making sense of our existence, making sense of the world and so on. But what's special about geography is it's concerned with environment. Now, that alone is huge. What do we mean by environment? Well, there are books and books and books about it. But when it comes to school level, if children could, uh, young people could leave school with an idea of how environments are both natural and human-made with all those complex interactions that go on between them, that they're dynamic, they're changing, they depend on energy flows. This is complex. But if children can leave school with that sort of, some sort of grasp of that, the interlinkages, then I think we've done something important particularly in the age of the Anthropocene, where we've got this mind-boggling idea, which I think is broadly accepted, that human actions are so evident, they are actually affecting physical systems and will be visible in the fossil record in hundreds of millions of years' time. Whether there are human beings still around is unlikely. But, you know, that time will come clear where, where, you know, human actions were so hugely important. I think children leaving school with that idea is profoundly important. And so, so I'm trying to get to this idea of thinking geographically. I, I don't think you, I've written about it, as you know, I mean, there are chapters in books about it, and you have to use words and you have to summarise, and you end up with lists and concepts. And Of course you do, but it's much more subtle about that. It's about getting... And this brings us back to powerful knowledge. Uh, Michael Young, the father figure of powerful knowledge, if you like, would want to distinguish a school curriculum of delivery, delivery of facts, delivery of inert 
information, whatever, from a curriculum of engagement. Curriculum of engagement is one that's underpinned by powerful knowledge, where the, the knowledge is always contested and debated and argued about. And that's what I'm after, thinking geographically. Would that be the difference then? I've, I've, I've struggled with this. It's like, it's beguiling. It's a wonderful sort of concept, but then it seems to get translated into work like E.D. Hirsch's, which is a list of things. Yes, yeah. And Nick Gibb talked about knowing the rivers of England, I seem to remember. Yeah, that's right. Do you want me to respond to that? Yeah, Yeah, go on. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is the problem when you start talking about knowledge, the knowledge question, because um, many people have written about it, of course. And the probably the most influential sort of theorist, if you want, on the English national curriculum from 2010 onwards, when the coalition government came into power was E.D. Hirsch. I suspect E.D. Hirsch was influential right the way back in the 1980s, in fact, and I think I've written about that. E.D. Hirsch was a cultural theorist, um, he's still alive, in in the USA, and his first book uh, was called Cultural Literacy, colon, What Every American Needs to Know. And if you pick up that book, you'll find some quite interesting theoretical work It is quite an interesting idea, cultural literacy, but half the book is the appendix, and it's a list of 5,000 things that Americans need to know, and it's kind of ludicrous. I mean, 10% of that 5,000 list are kind of quasi-geographical, things like Pacific Ocean, Himalaya. I mean, just the word. I mean, it's questionable about what you need to know (laughs) about. But Hirsch's argument is that you just need to know Pacific Ocean. You need that. You need that reference point. Well, I think this is um, this is not really anything to do with powerful knowledge. It's a different, and yet, because these words are familiar everyday words, and they're, they're open to abuse. And I think Nick Gibb, the former schools minister, who was in power for quite a few years and seeing through the reforms of the national curriculum and other things over the last 10 years or so, he referred to uh, powerful knowledge and others have too in a very careless way and it becomes reduced to a sort of a a Hirsch-like list. Um, I regret that but um, these things always need to be, these discussions need to be kept alive. Well, I did some digging and I, I, I found some articles, one of them by John White, and he was arguing that most of the school subjects that Young sees as providing powerful knowledge just fall short. They are still lists of things which people have decided are important yeah. rather than perhaps powerful, because powerful knowledge is hard to get your head around. It is, yes, uh, it, it is. And I'm more and more appreciative of that. It's quite a difficult concept. The problem with powerful knowledge as, as an idea is that it's not very analytical. It's kind of, so, so what is powerful knowledge? Well, it's, it's hard to say. Mm. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a little anecdote, which um, maybe I, I should apologize for in advance. I mean, Alaric Maud, uh, a fabulous colleague from uh, Southern Australia, was at the lecture session. There was a debate between Margaret Roberts and Michael Young. Uh, and I forget the year now, but it was a set piece debate, which I introduced. 
where Michael introduced powerful knowledge and Margaret argued against it. I think they finished that session actually remarkably close together. But that, that's something else. Following the, the session, Alaric, who was, happened to be in London and happened to be there, said, on the plane back to um, Australia, I'm going to write a list of the powerful concepts in geography. And I said to him, well, I wouldn't bother if I was you, <laughs> because, because that's not really, that doesn't really get to powerful knowledge. And he said, well, I'm going to, going to try anyway. And a, a few weeks later, I got an email from Alaric saying, yeah, you were probably right. I mean, <laughs> you know, a list of concepts, like agglomeration or environment, I mean, doesn't, doesn't actually get you anywhere. And it was then um, Alaric wrote his quite frequently cited article, or articles, I should say, one of which appeared in uh, the GA's journal Geography, about powerful knowledge and he came up with this five-part typology of geographical knowledge which I think has been helpful because Alaric's typology is more analytical than this broad concept powerful knowledge. Powerful knowledge is more like a, a heuristic, it's something to argue about and so my question always now is well in what way is what you're teaching powerful? Oh well as knowledge develops it can change so yeah. So something becomes powerful. Yeah. Right. Yes, exactly. As the situation globally might change, as, as students yeah. with different geographical understandings. Yes, I think that's right. And I think, as Alaric said in his original article, it's, and, and using Michael Young's own words to make the point, it's a matter of what you do with knowledge. <laughs> it's what you're able to do with it that makes it powerful. I mean, the words on a page, you know, a curriculum document is not powerful. It's not, not powerful. It's just words on a page. This is why teachers are so important. Teachers have to bring those words on the page alive. They have to know why they're teaching these ideas. And they have to find ways to get um, young minds to engage with those ideas and to do things with them. That's what makes it powerful. What were the five powerful knowledge types that he came up with? That sounds like a quiz question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I haven't got them written down. <laughs> but, and, and so I would just refer people to the article. I'm sure it's online via JSTOR. But it is a very useful way of analysing how geographical knowledge can be viewed in different ways. Ranging from, I think his type five was... I think he just called it knowledge of the world, which would be a factual knowledge base. I mean, this is where E.D. Hirsch uh, has a point. I mean, it, it is useful to know where the Pacific Ocean is. I mean, that in itself, though, is not powerful, but it's part of constellation of knowledge that becomes powerful. So that sort of basic factual knowledge is there in the equation. It's difficult to know then as a teacher, because if, if the geopolitics shifts... And suddenly the stands become important, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, whatever, because of what, whatever they're producing there. Yeah. Knowledge that then wasn't useful before, I suppose, but was what might have been considered a trivial pursuit question because you know the capital of Uzbekistan or whatever, yeah. suddenly now becomes powerful knowledge because you've got the information at hand to be able to analyze what's going on there and understand the relations between countries, where they are, what they're doing. Yes. 
this is actually um, precisely how I see it, that powerful knowledge is, as I said, a heuristic. It's, it's, um, it's a constant sort of argument discussion about the value, the utility of the knowledge contents of your curriculum. You use the, the, the stance as, as an argument. What I would also bring into the table is the current debate about decolonizing geographical knowledge. It's a very, very important debate because there are sort of settled ways of looking at the world. I've said geography is about making sense of the world. Well, who is making sense of whose world, for whom, is a really important question in geography, it, probably in all subjects, but uh, for us as geographers. And I think the decolonizing geographers group will make the point that um, for decades, for centuries, maybe from the beginnings of school geography, it has been a white gaze on the world with various um, assumptions, unspoken assumptions about human hierarchies, which are fundamentally racist. So therefore, we need to consciously decolonize um, our geographical knowledge. I think it's a very, very interesting argument. And John Morgan and I have just finished, literally, just completed the manuscript of a book where we, we discuss this and a lot more besides, uh, a book called Race, Racism and the Geography Curriculum, which incidentally has a chapter on the role of powerful knowledge. And it's really vital that powerful knowledge is understood in the ways that you've just said. It's, it's not a given. That's the whole point. It is not a given. And decisions have to be made about, well, who are we teaching? And what is our intention here? It brings very deep questions about how schools design their own curriculum then. And yep. when I was working with you at the GA, we looked at curriculum makings approach, right. which I think is a fascinating one, particularly now when, I won't say too much about this, but I was doing some work for the DfE. The project that we ran that was funded by the DfE that was the Critical Thinking for Achievement course, we were doing presentations to schools around the country. And one woman came to me and said, this is fantastic, this stuff, but I've just come back from maternity leave. I'm working for a, a multi-academy trust and they send me my lessons. Mm. They send me PowerPoints. Mm. And she felt that she had no agency whatsoever in curriculum making. And I'm finding that more and more in the work that I've been doing with teachers recently is that their curriculum, I'll use this word, I know you hate it, their curriculum is delivered to them for them to deliver to students. Mm. This is profoundly depressing to me. And <laughs> you know how uh, when you get older, you often become more conservative. Well, some people actually become more radical. Because <laughs> <laughs> you you lose all your responsibilities and you start to see things straight, maybe for the first time. I think this is outrageous. And many years ago, uh, an educationist called Robin Richardson wrote a book, which will be still possible to find somewhere. And I think the title was, What is Worth Fighting For? And this is worth fighting for. I'll tell you, if, if somebody uh, thought it was a good idea to send me lesson scripts to deliver, they would have a fight on their hands. I just wouldn't do it. In fact, I'll be even more candid. I, I don't think I could do it. I would find it utterly dishonest and unprofessional. 
I mean, I, a teacher has to have the autonomy to think hard about what they are doing. And if you're on the receiving end of scripted lessons, I don't think you've got enough space to do that. I think you still do have space, actually, <laughs> uh, but I don't think you have enough space to do that. And all our conversation hitherto this morning is rendered obsolete if teachers do not have some autonomy. I mean, in the literature, in the academic literature, the professor of curriculum studies now at the Institute, um, Zongi Deng, has, has written about this. And in relation to my work, has uh, suggested that I've tended not to take seriously the constraints that teachers are under. And mea culpa maybe, I, maybe I am guilty of that. Uh, not sensitive enough to um, uh, the woman you've just quoted. But actually, at, at the end of the day, that there, is a, there is a lot hanging on this. The kind of curriculum that I, I want, which is about fulfilling human potential, teaching young people how to think with ideas, is so important that this is worth fighting for. And the problem with uh, scripted lessons, they might be very good. Um, come on, let's face it, they might be very good, but they're not yours. <laughs> and I, I just don't see how you can, you can get behind somebody else's lesson, unless you've had time to manipulate it in your own way to make it yours. They're not necessarily the pupils either, because sure. different schools have different, I think the pupils have different needs. They'll have, they'll have a different view on the world, depending on their family circumstances, depending on their culture. Such an important point, yeah. I, I think for many, many years, as a school teacher in particular, I think I assumed that one, what was good for this group of students was good for that group of students. In other words, what was good teaching was just good. But no, I, I um, relax that. I think who you are teaching is the prior question. Am I meeting these children's needs? And the only way to answer that question is to get to know the children a bit. And that means asking them questions and finding out what they know, what they assume, what circumstances they're in. Not to be sensitive to who you're teaching is a way of actually alienating those students from the whole process. I think I found that out quite early on, but I didn't really understand it because I was given four or five third years when I first started teaching. So, oh, phew, thank goodness. I only have to prepare one lesson. It goes brilliantly well with one group. And then it's an absolute disaster with the next one. And I, I, what's going on? I'm doing exactly the same stuff. That's interesting, yeah. yeah. I don't know whether that's... That might have been the day as well. So Actually, you blame the time of day. You blame the weather. You blame everything else except you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it can sometimes be just that... The, there's a... Oh, I can't remember the name of the, of the author, but... The Grey Eminence, a, a book about being a head teacher, and he talks about the, just the subtle nuances of gently including students so that they feel welcome and they feel warm and they feel that they're part of this whole process that's going on within the classroom. Sure, and that is the, as I said at the beginning of this chat, that, that is the humanity of teaching. I mean, that's what's so attractive about teaching as a profession. 
that uh, you're, you're making those human connections in so many different kinds of ways. But most of our discussion has been on a sort of a different kind of level. It's really been about the curriculum. But I think what we're concluding now, that the question, who are we teaching and gaining some knowledge and understanding of those young people who we're interacting with, how to get them engaged with the, the knowledge content is a curriculum question. It's not, it's not just a sort of a, a nicety of teaching. It is a curriculum question. While we're on about curriculum questions, then I'd quite like to ask you, I, I think this was something you were writing about while I was still at the GA, so this goes back some time. We were talking about futures curriculum mm-hmm. or curricula and the three different futures that we, we yeah. might envisage for going forward and creating the curriculum that we wanted. So I'd like you to talk us through those three, and I know they're caricatures, the three scenarios, but they... Yeah, well, I think it's, I'm I'm glad you've asked, because I think it ties in precisely with what we've been talking about. With the capabilities project that we briefly discussed, where we um, were trying to use this notion of powerful knowledge as one of the theoretical constructs alongside capabilities, trying to marry the two, (laughs) we had to um, accept that powerful knowledge was a tricky idea and open for misunderstanding, uh, not least by the government, as we've said, but also school leaders and also colleagues within geography. So it's, it's a tricky, it's kind of a weasel word. I mean, powerful knowledge, it can be interpreted in so many different ways. And some people are uncomfortable with this word powerful because it, it can set all sorts of different thought processes in, in tray. I mean, what we need, what we mean is that it's the power to think. It's an emancipatory thing, but it's very hard to put that across. So Michael Young and his co-worker from South Africa, uh, Joanne Muller, realised this problem with the term that they were introducing to the world, powerful knowledge, and in 2010 wrote a paper about the three future scenarios. That's where it comes from. Ah, right. So uh, future one is the traditional given kind of grammar school curriculum that is delivered to kids and some kids are very good at absorbing it and do very well but most kids aren't it's a kind of a an alienating curriculum to many children and in Michael Young's early early work from the 1970s this was caricatured as the curriculum of the powerful the knowledge of the powerful which suited some Mm. excluded most yes that was the new sociology of education way back when And Michael Young, in the early noughties, wrote his book, uh, Bringing Knowledge Back In, because he argued that that knowledge of the powerful idea was not wrong, but they didn't, at that time, carry the argument through to its conclusion, because the conclusion which he he came to was that um, knowledge of the powerful thing doesn't mean we just eradicate the curriculum. It means what we have to do is find out how this powerful knowledge can be made accessible to all. And that was not possible through a future one curriculum, the traditional given knowledge delivery curriculum. But neither is it possible by the kind of the progressive learner-centered curriculum, which sometimes, not always, but sometimes is very careless with knowledge. It's almost like knowledge doesn't matter anymore. And geography has been quite interesting in this. 
David Leach's work in the, the late 1990s. His book was called Thinking Through Geography, a clever title and a very evocative title, but actually a title that actually reveals that the geography didn't matter that much. <laughs> it was just the kind of vehicle. And um, for me and for others, the geography matters a lot. We have to get it right. So the future too, kind of learner-centered, competence-based curriculum based on kind of thinking skills and various other outcomes isn't necessarily a good response to all the inadequacies of future one. That's where future three comes from. Future three is underpinned by this notion of powerful knowledge. But the work I'm doing right now, not least with this race book, is to, to see how powerful knowledge, if it's going to be made accessible to all, has to interact with other ways of knowing. Those ways of knowing that students themselves bring to school, the funds of knowledge of their communities. So powerful knowledge is, is has to interact and relate to these other ways of knowing. And that's the work yet to be done. But Future 3 is a knowledge-based curriculum, but not absolutely not a Future 1. However, as we said earlier, I'm afraid because this this work hasn't been done really, and mea culpa ran out of steam, it's easy for people to claim powerful knowledge just through this future one curriculum. So it's back to the future, you know, back to the sort of the rigid, pre-decided given knowledge contents, which um, is not what we're arguing for. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, you did work with lots of teachers across Europe oh, to yeah. put oh, this yeah. into practice. People can go and see where this is working. Oh, oh yes, that, yeah. But, but what I haven't done personally is worked hard enough. Yeah, may, maybe there's still time on developing sort of examples and, and techniques and ways of thinking to make this happen. In, in other words, sort of practical resources that can, be, can inform curriculum making. And most of my work, I accept, is kind of conceptual and theoretical. And, and there is more work to be done. Well, I'll see you in a, a year's time when that's the <laughs> <laughs> <your> next podcast. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, maybe there is. Well, maybe, I would certainly argue there's a there would be a, an argument for a podcast on race, racism, and the geography curriculum. This book will be published early in 2023, I, I think, and um, I, I hope it won't just be ignored. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Well, these things happen. <laughs> I, you mentioned something earlier, and I want to come back to it because we're nearing the end, I suppose. You've written a piece called Teaching in the Human Epoch, and you talked about the Anthropocene. Mm. So you talked a, a little bit about geography, the subject that studies the Earth as the home of humankind. Mm. So just talk me through... What are our responsibilities as geography teachers? Can you? Oh, this is a biggie question, though. In the Anthropocene, what do we? What are the key things that we need to be thinking about as teachers of of young children? It's, I mean, it's a, such a huge question, that, and I, and I'm sure that there are groups working on this uh, and at various levels um, um, across the world. 
you know, how to relate school subjects to these urgent existential challenges that we face is a huge problem. But my summary response would be to say that um, if, if we could be clear, we being teacher, our whole collective, if we could be clear about the value of geography, education, you know, what, how it contributes to children's intellectual and personal growth, then we're well on the way. And my answer to that is, well, we, we need to be clear about what it means to think geographically and what it means then to teach children of all types and backgrounds and uh, interests and so on and so forth, how to think geographically. And we do need to you know, go back to, back to the, the fundamentals of geography. It's place, space and environment. Those are the big concepts of geography. Understanding place, the significance of place, is uh, hugely important. Things happen in places, and those places are unique. And we can talk about general climate change and all the rest of it, but it impacts on places in a unique way. Mm. I think, I think if we could understand that better, we'd be um, in a better place. I think it makes for some uncomfortable think, uncomfortable decisions, some uncomfortable choices for teachers, because they're going to stray into political areas that at the moment the government seems to be pushing people away from. You mustn't make these sorts of comments. Well, the government, I, th I think, for its own wedge reasons, would like us to believe that. But nothing the government has said officially stops teachers any more than in the past from tackling these things. And when it comes to climate change, climate change is not really controversial. <laughs> not anymore. It is happening. What we need to do is get beyond this, you know, whether it's happening and all the rest of it. And I think in geography, um, start focusing on how it's impacting on places and how, how communities are having to respond, you know, in our everyday lives. Mm. Do we continue to water the garden when the temperature is 40 degrees? <laughs> it's going to be this weekend, apparently. Well, no, this is not sustainable. It is stupid. So we plant different plants, you know, on roundabouts and in, uh, on motorway uh, verges and so on. I mean, there are things that we can study and do and think about. But that's place. And then there's space, of course. Place, space, environment. Space is all about what I started with. You know, my fascination with geography is how it, things link together. And in a global, globalised world, this is endlessly fascinating and important to grasp. And again, there are some political issues surrounding that. But then environment itself. Now, what do we understand by environment? It's not just that stuff out the window. We're part of it. Mm. I think it was David Harvey wandered in... A, I can't remember which book this was, but uh, talking about New York and uh, suggesting that New York is every bit as natural as an ant heap. And when you think about it, it is, yeah. Ants construct this amazingly complex ant heap and it acts as a home for the community. There are food stores and blah, blah. blah. And this is what New York is, except it's humans, not ants. <laughs> I mean, we, we are part of the natural world. We are natural and our buildings and the creations are natural. And we better understand that they have effects 
And that's what geography is really good at teaching when it's taught well. I think that might be the point to stop. That's a pretty inspirational little finish for teachers, I think. Well, it it is a challenge. I accept that. And and, um, I was very, very interested in that earlier point where you you made about the tendency towards um, sort of corporate decision-making when it comes to the curriculum and the contents, what is taught, whether it's academy change or whatever. I mean, teacher autonomy is absolutely vital here. And this has been a cornerstone of my career. We have to trust teachers. If you don't trust teachers, it's all over because the quality of the educational encounters that children have will suffer. I get better exam results, but that's not what we're talking about. (laughs) I I remember some teachers saying to me, I I was presenting on the course one time. So the course I started before the national curriculum. I started teaching before and they were aghast. Well, what did you teach then? Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, we found something, didn't we? We, <laughs> we rummaged around. and I wandered down to the Fleur Library when it was on Forward Road in Sheffield and, uh, and grabbed everything I could find from there. And there was plenty of stuff on curriculum making in those days. Talk, talking about that, I mean, I remember I also started teaching way before the National Curriculum. I remember teaching some kids, actually it might even have been sixth formers, about climate change in the mid-1970s, so very, very ahead of the game, except I was teaching something called the ice blitz theory, <laughs> which, which was, pre- it was predicting the new ice age. <laughs> <laughs> However, I, I still maintain that it was worthwhile teaching because actually what I was teaching them was how to think with feedback loops. That's what I was teaching, whether it was a new ice age or global warming is immaterial. It was understanding the, the way <laughs> feedback works. Geography through system. feedback loops. <clears throat> That's been fantastic, David. It's been nice to catch up with you again after such a long time. It's been a fascinating chat. Thanks very much for joining us on Jogpod. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a great pleasure. I've enjoyed it too. <laughs> <laughs>